You're listening to Ascendant Health and Politics, a show about the day's emerging public health issues and the intersection of politics. Your hosts are Kyle McGowan and Amanda Campbell. Today, we're going to cover Biden's $2 trillion COVID plan that was formally released earlier this week. But first, we're going to touch on a few other newsworthy items that happened from this week. Earlier on Tuesday, January 19th, Senator Mitch McConnell said publicly for the first time that insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol were provoked by the president. You know, I I really hope more Republicans start to see it the way Mitch does, because frankly, it's the truth. I think it's going to take a while for us to get there, um, but Republicans certainly need to have the opportunity to recognize what happened and move on from this moment and move forward in a positive way. Probably more importantly, though, this week was the fact that um, President Biden, his presidential inauguration was held on Wednesday, and that event went off without any problems or disturbances. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the reason there were no problems or disturbances was because there were thousands of members of the National Guard present, which is kind of a sad state of our country. Uh, but former presidents Bush, Clinton, and Obama were present. Uh, clearly absent was Trump, who uh, by the time the swearing-in ceremony started was at his Mar-a-Lago hotel in Florida, uh, basically because he didn't want to have to ask President Biden for the use of Air Force One, which is traditionally what happens. The outgoing president will have to request the use of the plane one more time. He didn't want to do that, so he left the morning of. That's just terribly unfortunate and not the not the precedent that a president should be setting. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the last uh, sitting president to lose an election was George H.W. Bush. Um, and he actually started the um, tradition of leaving a note for the incoming president. And I'm going to read real quickly uh, George H.W. Bush's letter to then uh, our uh, President Bill Clinton. Dear Bill, when I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect that I felt years ago. I know you will feel that too. I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness some presidents have described. There will be very tough times ahead, made even more difficult by criticisms you may not think are fair. I'm not a I'm not very good I'm not a very good one to give advice but just don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course you will be our president when you read this note I wish you well I wish your family well your success now is our country's success I'm rooting for you good luck George wow that is the type of character that I think we want in all of our presidents and um, know that it took a lot of respect and um, just uh, real personal integrity to be able to write something like that to someone who just beat you in a national campaign um, on, on really a world stage. Um, so I think we know that also, um, Vice President Mike Pence was also at Biden's swearing in and, uh, and actually not at Trump's departure speech at Andrews Air Force Base. Right. Pence, uh, was still, I think, holding on to the thought of potentially running for president himself and attending the swearing in ceremony or not attending the swearing in ceremony for Biden, I think would have looked bad in a lot of folks' eyes. 
And I think he made the, the a good move and the right move by attending. I think it was, in all honesty, the necessary move for him, though, if he thinks and hopes to have, um, you know, a, a political future. Right. Um, but wasn't there also talk about pushing the inauguration back until post-COVID? Well, n- not really. There was one uh, junior senator from Alabama who thought it would be a good idea to push uh, the January 20th swearing-in ceremony back until after the pandemic is over. The only problem with Senator Tommy Tuberville's idea is that the Constitution says uh, that the date will be on January 20th. Um, this is one of those, uh, you know, here in Georgia, bless his heart sayings. Um you know, but there's going to be quite a bit of a, a learning curve, I think, for the new senator. Um, he was, as many of you probably know, the coach at Auburn. Um, and so to put this into a, a, a football reference for the good senator, it's like saying I'm going to punt on fifth down. It's just <laughs> not a thing, right? Uh, um, I, I even know that. Right. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I feel like I can, uh, you know, kind of prod uh, the Senator Tuberville a little bit because he was the coach uh, while I was at UGA and they tend to kind of beat us quite a bit. So uh, I feel like making fun of him a little bit. Uh, but there will be a learning curve for him. But no, there was no real serious talk <laughs> of moving the uh, swearing in ceremony back. Well, thanks for, for clarifying that for us to Kyle. Yeah, sure. And um, I guess now shifting gears uh, to really talk about what we're here to talk about today, um, we're going to talk about the recent Biden COVID plan, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, You know, now that the president has been sworn in, the Biden administration will begin the hard task of governing. Uh, Last Thursday, prior to the inauguration, so January 14th, Biden released an initial draft of his COVID-19 plan, which outlined the administration's um, focus and priorities for the plan and what they'd be asking from Congress in short order. They set an enormous goal for themselves to vaccinate 100 million people in the first 100 days of the administration, but they've also said that they would develop a comprehensive federal strategy to respond to COVID from the, both the public health perspective, um, you know, to the economic response as well. And you know, I think we're seeing what is likely to be one of the biggest challenges already, which is supply of the vaccine. Um, without additional approved vaccines, there's there's probably simply not going to be enough Pfizer and Moderna vaccine available for the Biden administration to reach their goal. Um, you know, and it's important to put into perspective that they need to vaccinate 1 million people per day over the next 100 days in order to reach that goal. Really can't be understated. That's a that's a big goal. Um, now, there's there's been some hubbub in the news lately that the Trump administration had no vaccination plan, but it's hard to fully buy into that when you have almost 38 million doses of vaccine out the door and over 17 million that have been administered. Um, and, you know, even in the past couple of days, they have reached almost to that um, or, or right above that 1 million uh, vaccinations a day. So, You know, while the plan could certainly have been more transparent and probably should have been more organized, these numbers are not insignificant. Right. I mean, the the Trump folks, um, while there there certainly was a plan, they weren't as transparent as they could have been or should have been. Um, But, you know, the difference is the Biden folks have been very forthcoming with their plan. They actually released their formal uh, 
plan on January 21st, and it's entitled The National Strategy for the COVID-19 Response and Pandemic Preparedness. Um, It lays out seven very distinct goals. Uh, Number one, restore trust with the American people. Mount a safe and effective and comprehensive vaccination campaign. Mitigate spread through expanding masking, testing, data, treatments, healthcare workers, and public health uh, standards. Uh, Four, immediately expand emergency relief and exercise the Defense Production Act. Uh, safely reopen schools, businesses, and travel while protecting workers, protect those most at risk, and advance equity, including across racial, ethnic, and rural-urban lines. And lastly, they want to restore U.S. leadership globally and build better preparedness for future threats. You know, I think those are some pretty good goals that most people can get behind, at least at a high level. Yeah, of course. And, you know, the, the Biden team, they're, they're not waiting on Congress to act. You know, a number of things in here they're doing with executive orders immediately and other things they're going to have to wait uh, for Congress to act. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, and I think we should dig into that a little bit more. So let's start with what he can actually do without Congress or the immediate actions he's going to be taking through executive order. Broadly speaking, Biden will be using executive orders to direct, coordinate, and manage existing federal resources according to his agenda. And as we've seen, he's wasted no time. On day one, he signed 17 executive orders, many of which were used to roll back Trump administration policies. But there were a few that were aimed at public health. One was to require face coverings and social distancing on federal property. One was to require the U.S. to rejoin the World Health Organization. And then one was to create a COVID-19 response coordinator role within the White House. Yeah, I mean, wearing masks and rejoining the WHO is great. Those are no-brainers, right? I mean, that that needed to be done. The COVID-19 response coordinator position, honestly, in my mind, is just a name change, right? I mean, as we've seen in the news, the Biden team is really gung-ho about rebranding. They're changing the name of Operation Warp Speed and the Coronavirus Task Force. To me, this just kind of reflects that they're wanting to put their own name and brand on uh, the transition into them now taking over. But Uh, This doesn't really look like a a big deal to me. This is kind of window dressing. Yeah, and I think that's right. But I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, they want the new brand because they want these successes moving forward to be their successes and not to be, you know, credited to the former administration. Right. Uh, But but let's keep going um, because there are a few more to get through. Um, The the day after uh, Biden was inaugurated, he signed a number of additional executive orders that were all specific to COVID. Um, and the COVID-19 response efforts. And now this is a lot, so please bear with me. But I think it's important to kind of run through them because that's what will set the stage for what the administration is going to be asking Congress for additional support for in this next COVID-19 package. So the first order was addressing the supply chain for PPE or protective personal equipment, which is like masks, gowns, et cetera, and other materials that are going to be needed to get vaccines into arms. Yeah. So this is uh, basically invoking the Defense Production Act for those things you mentioned, masks, PPE, but also other things like testing, uh, rapid test kits, syringes. Um, You know, the vast majority of these products are manufactured overseas 
and there's still, you know, many of these products are in, in high demand and uh, hospitals and other settings are having trouble getting them. So I think this is a good a, a good thing to do um, to, you know, the Trump administration talked about using the Defense Production Act a number of times. Uh, but all, you know, the only thing they actually used it for was the production of ventilators, not for masks and N95s and PPE, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and so I think this is is actually going to be helpful, or, or at least I hope it will prove to be helpful in making sure that we have, you know, not just the masks that, you know, you and I wear to the grocery store, but, you know, the, the hospital grade, medical grade type of PPE that we need, especially as we're seeing cases continue to surge in this country. Right. Um, so another order that was signed uh, was to establish a pandemic testing board and develop a national testing strategy that will expand our testing capacity and really focus on helping schools and businesses reopen. You know, a lot of folks tend to think that now that the vaccine is out and getting in people's arms that the need for testing is really not needed. Um, that's just not true. I mean, this continues to be a very, very important part of um, ending this pandemic, especially now that there are more strains uh, out in the environment and in circulating. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think it'll be more important too as we get more vaccine because it'll help us identify outbreaks or areas within communities that, you know, vaccines need to be surged into in order to help protect, you know, the rest of the community or, or what have you. Um, another order was to establish COVID, a COVID-19 health equity task force that will help to advise the team on making sure the, the plans they are putting together don't leave those high-risk, vulnerable populations behind. Yeah, this is this is very nice and encouraging to see. Um, but the CDC established a health equity office within our COVID response last summer, summer of 2020. So, I mean, we we recognized early on that we needed to make sure that we were reaching these vulnerable populations, and actually had an office embedded in the CDC's response months and months ago. But this is good to this is good to see. So additional orders were um, signed to increase treatments and therapeutics. There was also an order to create a public dashboard with real-time national and state-level data on cases, testing, vaccinations, and hospital admissions. Yeah, you know, the CDC is already collecting the vast majority of that data, so it's my hope that that data continues to reside in the CDC. You know, in the previous administration, we saw you know, a number of turf battles over the ownership of this data, whether it was at the White House or HHS, it needs to be at the CDC. And I hope that's where it remains. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think the other challenge that we've seen is the collection of real-time data is a lot harder than it sounds, especially in, in this day and age that folks think it's the 21st century. You know, we have these great computers on our on our you know, cell phones at this point. But really, that challenge still remains because of the underinvestment in public health that we've talked about before. Um, you know, because CDC relies on on states and, and local public health departments in order to actually, you know, retrieve that data. Um, so this is important. And I, you know, one, we're going to be watching closely. Um, the next order was to impose a mask wearing mandate on airplanes and other forms of interstate transportation. Well, this is just a duh. 
<laughs> I mean, that, that, that should have been done in the spring of 2020. I know Dr. Redfield and others at the CDC were saying this over and over again and encouraging both the president and vice president to wear them themselves, lead by example. This should have been done in 2020. And um, I'm, I'm glad to see it now. You know, what what you see when you have no clear guidance from the federal government is exactly what happened. Different airlines having different mandates, different states having different mandates. And, um, you know, it, it's not helpful, not helpful at all. So I'm frankly glad to, to see to see this. Yeah. Um, the next order was to restore full federal funding for the National Guard's pandemic work reversing a Trump administration decision from this previous summer, actually, to, which um, cut most states' funding by 25%. Uh, this will also approve more FEMA funding for states uh, from their disaster relief fund to help them support schools reopening and reimburse them for some of the things that they're going to need, just like masks for teachers and what have you, um, but also to make more FEMA resources available to Native American tribes. Um, the order will also help to set up 100 community vaccination sites in the next 30 days. Yeah, this is the a clear and classic example of the carrot versus the stick. Uh, I mean, this is, this is how you encourage schools to open. You offer them the funding they need uh, to prepare to open. Uh, the former administration took the opposite, which is we're going to withhold funding if you refuse to open schools. Uh, just, again, not helpful. Yeah, we saw a lot of lot of starting and stopping, and absolutely, um, just you know those challenges challenges are still with us today. Obviously, um, so a couple more, and, and we're we're almost done. Promise. Um, there's an order to clarify that insurers need to cover testing costs for everyone and even those who do not have symptoms. It sounds like there was a bit of a loophole there, um, so they wanted to make sure that was clarified. And then an order to strengthen worker safety, which is actually going to be calling on OSHA um, to issue updated guidance on COVID-19 worker protections. Yeah, so so far, all of these executive orders have, I've kind of, yeah, agreed for the most part with, with what they're trying to do and the, the themes that they're kind of putting out there. This one, though, I'm worried about, and I want to keep my eye on. Um, it sounds great. Um, who wouldn't want to protect worker safety? Uh, but, you know, we both worked very closely with OSHA and other agencies putting out guidelines and guidance last year when the pandemic first started. And, and my fear is that OSHA may be, they're not doctors, they're not physicians, they're I'm married to an attorney. I love her to death. They're mostly attorneys and they're seeking the perfect, right? The perfect way of protecting people and keeping them perfectly safe at, safe at work. And I'm worried that they're going to put in place um, things that are too onerous and are going to end up like actually doing worse by shutting offices and shutting different uh, employers down. And that, that's not what we want. So this is one that we're definitely going to be keeping an eye on on that. Yeah. Well, and my hope is that they'll do uh, what they did earlier in their response when we were still at CDC, which is to work with the scientists and medical professionals, public health professionals at CDC, as well as industries too, to ensure that whatever guidance they do put out p provides the flexibility and, um, is actually feasible for businesses to right. implement. 
So the, um, the final order that was signed yesterday was to actually get the majority of schools safely opened within 100 days. And, and we kind of saw that theme obviously run through some of these other executive orders that we've already talked about. Yeah, you know, again, like we like I just said about working with OSHA, we, we were working with the Department of Education and the CDC last summer. Uh, and a lot of this guidance and a lot of the progress was made last summer. And, um, you know, I remember working through, I think it was weeks and weeks and weeks of trying to get guidance documents out on how to reopen schools, how to open schools safely. Uh, we worked through HHS and the Department of Education, the president's own inner circle within the White House, the communications department, and I'm sure I'm leaving out others, clearly OMB and others who had no reason to be commenting on these things. We finally get to an agreement. We put our guidance out. And then on July 7th, Trump tweets, I disagree with the CDC on their very tough and expensive guidelines for opening schools. While they want them to open, they're asking schools to do very impractical things. I will be meeting with them. I actually remember where I was standing when that tweet went out. So do I. Yeah. And, and it's just so frustrating. The hours and hours and hours that the folks at the CDC and others put into making sure that guidance got out and it was good and it was accurate. And then one tweet just burns it down. That's exactly right. And I remember that guidance too. You know, we, we were just talking about the impact of businesses and guidance and wanting to make sure that, you know, any guidelines you put out are, are flexible. And a lot of that's what was in this guidance. It wasn't, you know, strict requirements. It was recommendations for schools to begin to consider, you know, what they needed to do to reopen. And then because of this treat, what we ended up seeing was that further guidance ended up being delayed and schools just had to go at it on their own, come up with their own plan, implement, and then see what happened. And I think some of that probably would have been the case regardless, but because it wasn't informed by CDC and by public health as much as it could have been, it's just an, you know, an opportunity lost to say the least. Um, so there are two final actions that actually weren't executive orders that I do want to touch on that, that the Biden administration has done so far. Um, and the first is that it said it is not going to maintain the Trump administration's recently implemented policy to distribute vaccines to states based on how fast they administered them or penalizing states that are slower, which we've discussed on our um, podcast last week. They have not determined how they'll administer them moving forward, and they wouldn't commit to return to the original system of allocating doses based on each state's total population. The other item is that the administration has also restored the White House National Security Council Directorate for Global Health Security and Biodefense. That's a mouthful. Yeah, you know, as we said last week, I think it's a great idea. The change that the Biden administration put in in not punishing states for getting vaccine out quickly, right? I mean, the states that are getting it out quickly, wonderful, great. Let's focus on the states that are having trouble. Um, so I'm pleased to see this this change. You know, as I've said about window dressing so far, you know, there's been a lot of talk and a lot of people angry about. And I'm doing air quotes here. You know, getting rid of the global health security and biodefense um, office within the NSC. Look, I, I worked with Admiral Zemer, who was the head of that office, 
during the 2018 Obama, I mean, uh, um, uh, Ebola outbreak. Mm-hmm. And great folks doing great work. Admiral Zemer didn't leave. He went to U.S. leave the government. He went to USAID to continue to work on Ebola, where we continue to work with them. And, you know, I mean, the folks that were working in an office, yeah, they did move around, but I, I, I don't think this is as big of a deal as a lot of people are wanting to, to make it out. We still would have had a pandemic, even if there was a office across the street from the White House called the Global Health Security and Biodefense Office. That's right. And I don't know that our response really would have changed. Yeah. Yeah. So now we've covered what Biden plans to do without Congress, but this is just the tip of the iceberg of what the Biden administration is going to ask from Congress. We mentioned earlier on that the Biden team had put together a comprehensive $1.9 trillion, with a T, plan. Uh, and now keep in mind, this plan was released less than a month since Congress passed the long-awaited COVID stimulus that was over $900 billion. So this is double that. Yeah, and this bill is really two things. It's uh, meant to support the public health infrastructure needed to end the the pandemic. And it's also uh, has a lot of what I would call goodies to provide stimulus uh, to struggling families and businesses. You know, some of those major items are things like raising the minimum wage, additional relief checks to families, raising the child tax credit. Uh, There's food and housing subsidies and, you know, just in general, a a huge chunk of funding to go to small businesses. Yeah, that's right. Um, And and some of these things, too, you know, like raising the minimum wage, these are just Democrats' priorities that we're seeing under this bill, but under the guise of, you know, being a part of the economic response. I would... I would like to kindly disagree with that um, because I think that puts a lot of, uh, you know, uh, owner, onerous requirements on businesses. And right now, I think that's the most important thing we need to, you know, keep in mind is that businesses need to stay open so that they can keep people employed. Absolutely. But I've digressed. So let's focus on the response side of the bill for now. Um, one of the big things that it has asked for, that the administration is asking for, is funding to help support 100,000 new public health workers. And this is interesting because, you know, Dr. Redfield talked about, you know, the need to have boots on the ground early on in this pandemic to really support contact tracing. Um, And like we said earlier, that's going to be an important part of the response moving forward, actually, Um, because we're going to we're going to continue to see a need for these people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we, we had a need for these type of individuals in the Ebola outbreak of 2014, uh, Zika, the Ebola outbreak in 2018, uh, and now COVID, and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of small outbreaks in between that of measles and foodborne. I'll just be flat out honest. It will be an absolute failure on everyone's part that is an elected official or an administration, if we hire these 100,000 public health workers for the next six to eight months to finish putting this pandemic down, and they aren't continued to be funded moving forward. Because these are the types of roles that can immediately, I mean, we're talking over and over again about how public health has been underfunded. This is exactly what has been underfunded for decades. And, you know, these folks can immediately start switching to things like infectious STDs, HIV, mental health, homelessness. These are all things that these individuals are trained to help with. And my hope is that we're able to get these folks out the door and working on COVID. And then next year they're working on 
other things because Congress continues to fund it. That is my hope as well. I firmly believe that we need to be taking a more proactive rather than a reactive stance in terms of public health because you can't expect public health to be there if you don't invest in it. Right. So a couple of other items related to the response side, you know, they're asking for another big, big chunk of money to help support vaccinations and testing, about $70 billion in total for that. And we've already talked about how important a comprehensive testing strategy is going to be. Um, but there's also funding to support an expanded disease surveillance effort and outbreak strike teams, which is, I think, really good and something that, you know, will enable, um, especially at the local level, folks to move quickly. And this expanded disease surveillance effort, they've said that they're already going to call this the National Center for Epidemic Forecasting and Outbreak and Analytics, and that it'll, it'll be an interagency effort. But it's really my hope that the CDC can take the the lead on this because that's really where the data needs to live. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they, they thread this needle, needle moving forward. Um, and then of course there's a lot of money that'll be help be asked or uh, requested to help support the reopening of schools. So, you know, $1.9 trillion is a lot um, to require in a, in a new package, um, especially so recently after one has just passed. And the Democratic Congress kind of has two paths forward. The first is to work across the aisle on bipartisan legislation that aims to achieve the majority of the goals laid out by the Biden administration. The second is to use reconciliation uh, to achieve the majority of the policies that require new funding. Because reconciliation is a budgetary tool, it's restricted to items that have a budgetary impact and either increase or decrease federal funding. Yeah, so we're getting a little wonky here, but I think it's important to explain that um, you don't get to just snap your fingers and you get $2 trillion. Mm-hmm. Um, the things that we've laid out here are there's a lot in it that's important. This is going to take time, though, to 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 one either have a two trillion dollar bill pass or some version of it. So, but what what's the timing? You think? So it's important to remember that the last bill on COVID took about eight months to craft and pass. This time, the timeline for this bill is much shorter. The earliest they could get something done is probably late February or early March. But the deadline for Dems is March, or excuse me, the deadline for Democrats is March 14th when the unemployment assistance runs out. And and that's important because that may limit their options with such a a short timeline. But I now now think it's important for us to discuss how this is different from the Trump administration's activities or how this plan that Biden has put out is different from the activities that were already occurring under the Trump administration. Yeah, you know, a lot of this plan really isn't reinventing the wheel. Um, I think it's certainly light years ahead in actually improving the messaging, which is extremely important. I'm encouraged to see references to, you know, planning for future future public health events, because that's exactly what we need to be doing right now, with an emphasis on our, our global role in public health. You know, the other thing that I'm encouraged is, um, you know, frankly, how much focus there is on reopening. I, I believe that there 
was certainly a conflict in the previous administration when it came to this type of messaging. It was, we're going to message everything is all as well so we don't harm the economy. Um, you know, what the Biden team is doing is, you know, really pushing public health messaging as a tool to reopening so that the economy will do better. I know it sounds a little nuanced, but it's really at odds and completely different as far as messaging goes. You know, one thing that stands out to me, though, that both the Trump and now Biden administration seems to be overlooking is utilizing uh, primary care and office-based practitioners to support vaccination efforts. I mean, th these are the folks that are typically on the front line where you go and you see on a regular basis, this is, you know, these are the folks you get your flu shot from every year. I, you know, I'm not seeing them in the current Biden plan as far as helping with vaccination efforts. And to me, that seems like a, a misstep. Yeah, I think there needs to be more clarity in, you know, expanding and utilizing all of the resources that we have within our healthcare system, even though there's been a lot of focus on, for example, healthcare workers in hospital settings and pharmacies, you know, et cetera. Um, but, you know, we'll be keeping our eye on that moving forward. So before we wrap up, I want to take a second to talk about some of the next steps that we can expect to see moving forward. We're already hearing that the White House has reached out to a bipartisan group of 16 senators to help develop the contours of the next COVID deal, which is similar to how they reached a deal back in December when a smaller group of bipartisan senators got together and kind of laid out some of the, the high-level details that needed to be included in that bill. There's also talk of doing a skinny COVID relief bill that would provide targeted relief checks and additional funding for vaccination efforts. And I, I think this is less likely, but it could still be on the table if the clock runs out in mid-March. The Senate is still negotiating the ground rules, though, that they plan to adopt and whether or not to keep the filibuster in place. It probably seems arcane, but this discussion between McConnell and Schumer is what will set the tone for bipartisan activity moving forward. The margins are so slim that Democrats could box themselves into a corner very early on if they discount the need to work across the aisle. It would likely mean that the majority of their work being, would end up being done through reconciliation, which would still require all 50 Democrat votes plus Vice President Harris's vote as well. So it's important to understand that the Senate does not have a 51-seat majority. I know that we keep hearing it like that's the case because, rightfully so, uh, Senator Schumer will be the next majority leader or is the majority leader. But Schumer and McConnell are still working out this power-sharing agreement for how the Senate will operate. And while President, or excuse me, Vice President Harris can serve as that tie-breaking vote, it's a tricky spot for Democrats as they're trying to figure out how they're going to get this agenda accomplished. And it probably means that right now Joe Manchin is the most important in, in the Senate. Um, but if Democrats do end up going down the path of using reconciliation, which Speaker Pelosi has already said that that's what they're looking to do, they have to keep in mind that it wouldn't allow them to include certain provisions like raising the minimum wage or paid fam family leave. Now, that's something that we can explore in another episode because um, it's, a, it's a bit wonky. I'll give you that. But reconciliation is a very unique tool that's been used effectively in the past to enact major legislation. Um, a couple of examples are like 2017 and tax reform, um, as well as major pieces of, of Obamacare. Yeah. And, you know, so much of what we've laid out today in the Biden strategy will, will require additional resources, uh, which can only come from Congress. 
And as you mentioned earlier, it took eight months for the last Congress to pass the most recent uh, stimulus package in December. Uh, but with the Democrats controlling, you know, both chambers of Congress and the White House, it's still going to be. Di- I mean, it's going to be difficult still. And uh, you know, deadlines are so helpful to get Congress to act, which is why that kind of mid-March deadline is so important. Without Congress taking action, this will be a complete failure. You know, it, it's it's going to be extremely difficult, if not impossible already, to get 100 million vaccinations out in people's arms in 100 days, which is what the Biden's goal is, Biden uh, administration's goal is. But without additional resources, frankly, it's going to be impossible. It will not happen without those additional resources. Mm-hmm. It may not need to be $2 trillion, it, but additional resources will be needed. Um But as we uh, learn more on this, we will always bring it to you. Um, That's all the time we have for today. As a reminder, you can now find our podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. Don't forget to subscribe and uh, maybe write a positive review. Remember to stay classy, stay healthy, America.